This is Bloomberg Business Week. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Jason Kelly. We're here every day bringing you the latest news from the world of business and finance. Plus technology, politics, economics, all harnessing the power of Bloomberg Business Week reporters and editors. Not to mention our 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. You can download Bloomberg Business Week on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show weekdays at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio. So one of the stories we talked about, General Motors, their latest offer to the UAW uh, included $9 billion of total investment in U.S. plants. That's about $2 billion more than the carmaker proposed nearly a month ago that was rejected by the union. This is all according to a person familiar with the matter. Let's get to what you need to know. David Welch, Detroit Bureau, <clears throat> Detroit Bureau Chief at Bloomberg News, on the phone from our Detroit Bureau. Uh, also with us, Rebecca Lindland, founder of RebeccaDrives.com, on the phone from Greenwich, Connecticut. David, set the scene for us. So where are we and how likely is the UAW to accept uh, this new offer if it indeed is a real offer? Um, probably not likely. They're going to want more. Uh, that offer was made earlier in the week. GM may have sweetened it a little bit. Uh, they're, they are still meeting. But the union really, they want commitments for new vehicles to be made in certain plants that are, are just underutilized right now. And the reason they do is they don't want to see what happened in Lordstown again, where GM completely idled and will probably close a compact car plant. They have a couple of factories working on one shift. Typically, they want to work with uh, at least two shifts, maybe three, to really make money. And the union figures, okay, we'll sign off on this deal. We'll get raises and so forth. And then two, three years into the contract, GM will just idle one of two plants, maybe one in Lansing, Michigan, another in Fairfax, Kansas. Uh, and, and not that they've said that, but I'm pointing those out because they're underutilized plants. They're running on one shift right now, and car companies don't like to do that. The union wants a safeguard, and they don't want a letter that says, we're going to keep you open. They want products being built that consumers are buying to make sure those plants stay open. So, Rebecca Lindland, come on in here, because yeah, I think part of what we're trying to understand with this story, which obviously has a business element, very much a human element here, a classic labor versus management kind of showdown, is what it tells us, not just about GM, but about the broader auto industry here, its capacity and, and where it may be in terms of its re-evolution, as it were. Yes, and thanks for having me on. And David, it's nice to hear your voice. <laughs> so, yes. Um, so you know, Jason, I think that one of the things that's important to remember is how this industry, how the the, the industry of mobility, is changing, and it's changing at an incredibly rapid rate. So a lot of what the union is asking for in terms of better working conditions or, you know, secure jobs and, and, and assurances that plants will stay open, these are issues that are nearly 100 years old. And this is an industry that's been around for over 100 years. So none of these issues are new. The challenge that's new is that the industry is under pressure from places that they haven't had pressure before and competitors that haven't been in the in this space before in that mobility space and as consumers have more choices not only in terms of you know traditional brands uh, that are not unionized like a Hyundai Hyundai or or a Honda or Toyota but they also now have choices in terms of vehicle of you know an Uber and a Lyft. They have Waymo now, you know, with uh, with uh, self-driving vehicles and all these different opportunities to not buy a car. 
And so what I think GM is looking for is to hedge their bets a little bit. They can't be tied down to a strict number so we get back to something like the jobs bank because we sure as heck don't want to go back to those days. You know what I wonder, too, and David, um, I want to ask you, is I do wonder, is the union... I get it. And they want, you know, GM has been doing well coming off of the financial crisis, you know, uh, certainly in a much stronger financial position. And they want a piece of, you know, the profit picture. But are they potentially being short-sighted, you know, as Mary Barr tries to, you know, realign the focus for what she believes should be the GM of the future? Because you don't want, you know, other companies being able to, you know, chip away more of uh, GM's market share. So the union fundamentally believes that we won't see electric vehicles in big numbers for a while. Um, And and what they also see is GM coming off four years of of record profits and and will be in the vicinity of that this year, at least on an adjusted basis probably, although the the strike certainly throws their earnings uh, into flux, but they were headed that way before the strike. They're also, GM, the largest importer of vehicles from Mexico. So the union is also saying, hey, you know, you can invest in that other stuff. That's great. You're making great money. Why not just move some of the vehicles back here so that you can run these plants uh, at, at full tilt and, and invest in America? And uh, that, that, that's, that's their fundamental argument is, you know, forget about, the, about all the future stuff for a moment. You make a lot of vehicles in Mexico that you sell here. But I get that point. I mean, Rebecca, is that short-sighted, though, on the part of the union? I I think it is. I mean, one of the things I would love to see that comes out of this agreement is a significant share of profits for the union. So it's, you know, if if they can can have a, a significant share of this good fortune that General Motors is happening, you know, it's happening at GM, and it's happening in part because of really good management and also because of the restructuring that they were allowed to do 10 years ago. So it really set them up for success. But, I, you know, it's, you want to have that, that reward for the performance and reward for profit sharing and have that tied to their performance tied to the to the UAW's performance. So, you know, I I totally agree with what David's saying. There's a lot of vehicles that are built in Mexico, but a lot of that is because they can build them at a bigger profit, and in part because they have to fund some of these those, those investments, like into autonomous vehicles, into into attributes like super cruise and stuff. You've got that money has to come somewhere from somewhere, right? And so they've got to be able to control wages. All right. Well, it's a story that we certainly will continue to watch and very much appreciate the context from both of you. Rebecca Lindland, founder of RebeccaDrives.com. She joins us on the phone from Greenwich, Connecticut. And David Welch, our Detroit bureau chief there in the middle of it all. He joined us on the phone from our Detroit bureau. There is only so much in the ground. I do want to talk a little bit about the energy and oil market, specifically Iran, uh, saying missiles struck one of its tankers in the Red Sea, the latest in a series of attacks on oil infrastructure in the region that have really roiled energy markets. We do see crude oil up about 2% uh, on this Friday. Jessica Summers follows the energy markets for us. She is oil trading reporter at Bloomberg News. She's in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker studio. 2%. 
Not off the charts, just no. a little bit higher. Put this in context in terms of uh, what exactly was struck and the impact that that has on energy supplies. Sure. Great to be with you, too, on this very interesting day in the oil market. Like you said, there's a bit of a geopolitical risk premium in the market. Not so much, though. We did see WTI rally as much as 2.5% during the intraday session there. Brent climbed above $60 a barrel for the first time in quite a while. That's a key psychological level. As Iran said, that missile struck that tanker in the Red Sea. Iran's tanker company said the attacks likely came from Saudi Arabia, but then actually withdrew those claims. There's a bit of information up in the air right now. The U.S. also said it would be sending troops to help defend Saudi Arabia. So, you know, all in all, this really just underscores the instability in the Middle East, especially following those massive attacks on energy facilities in Saudi Arabia. And I really liked what an RBC analyst said earlier today, which was the market's a bit too complacent right now and that we're just one security incident away from a war. Right. And so why do you think the market is complacent? Is it just getting used to this? Is it thinking about the oil supply in a different way? What's underneath it? Well, traders just don't seem to be showing so much concern when we're having these continued and, say, heightened tensions in the Middle East time after time again over the last few weeks. And I want to say that's because of the demand picture. There's a lot of fears out there that demand is just not going to hold up leading into next year. In fact, the International Energy Agency today cut its global oil demand forecast, growth forecast, that is, for this year and next year. And the IEA also said that OPEC is just pumping far too much oil for what we even need next year. So that is sort of keeping oil in check mm. there and not allowing it to rally too far. Well, interesting. That, that's yeah. interesting that this What's is that? about the demand side because we worry so much about supply, it feels like. Yeah. I mean, I, don't you feel like there's been kind of those two stories in, in general? We've seen supply, I feel like, coming from everywhere. We talk yeah. about the U.S. now being such a dominant player, too, in the global energy supplies, thanks to all the fracking mm-hmm. uh, and oil that we've been, get, get, been able to get out of the ground here in the United States. So I do feel like that's at play too but right at the same time concurrently we have the story about you know weaker demand we constantly you know are covering a story right you know jason about weaker you know economic growth globally right, right, and when you say around. and when you say u.s supply that's exactly right so aside from the sort of weak demand outlook just looking beyond the flat price of oil rally today i was checking out the wti prom spread and uh it was trading in contango for most of this week so that really signals an oversupplied market we're getting big bills of crude at Cushing, Oklahoma. And that's telling you that they anticipate that prices are going to be lower in the future? Exactly. So if prices prices right now are cheaper than later dated barrels. So that means that, you know, as we continue to see builds at the big supply hub at Cushing, Oklahoma, especially now given that refineries are in turnarounds, that means we're going to continue to see weakness in some of these oil spreads, which tend to tell us more about the direction of right. the market than flat price. I didn't want Jason to think contango is like a, a dance like the same. <laughs> oh, boy. <laughs> I mean, it's just so easy. It's that easy to make fun of me. I love it. I love it. I love it. I love that I'm the little dumb dumb next to you. Uh, So Jessica, what do we expect to see next? You know, it's interesting in in the story on the Bloomberg today, Mm -hmm. it cites an interview on 60 Minutes with uh, Mohammed bin Salman, the Mm -hmm. crown prince of Saudi Arabia. You and I have talked a lot about this interview, Carol, offline. You know, this is ultimately a very, very uh, fragile political environment we're living in. You mentioned the troops, the U.S. troops going to Saudi Arabia. 
in addition to a, an incident, we may be a tweet away from something that could really affect the oil markets too. No, right? absolutely. And I want to point out that the Saudi prince did say recently that or he sort of warned recently that he said conflict between Saudi Arabia and Iran would lead to a total collapse of the global economy. So it's very interesting that traders and oil investors aren't taking this so right. seriously right now. I do agree that the geopolitical tensions in the Middle East, I think about the story that we've got in the magazine about Syria specifically and, and Russia potentially coming in to fill a vacuum as the U.S. backs off of the region. You do wonder about what future turmoil might come out as a result. And this might be, you know, one of those black swans yeah. that everybody mm-hmm. is not ready for. And it's not just the energy markets. This would be a global market and uh, economic story. Absolutely. It, it's really great reporting. And we really appreciate the context. Jessica Summers, oil trading reporter for Bloomberg, covering all things energy for us here in New York. She was in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. Coming up, we're going to talk a little bit about the magazine, take a turn toward Wall Street. I really like this story. What's the name of the company? Suited. And initially you're like, oh. Oh, cool. I could use some suits. We're going to talk about suits. No, we're not. No, we're not. We're going to talk about, in (laughs) fact, hiring and diversity and inclusion on Wall Street, which is arguably more important than how good I look. All right. One of my favorite uh, stories in the magazine this week. I mean, the headline alone is such a good grabber. AI has a solution. Yes. You initially thought the story was about suits. I did. I thought thought it was about, well, because I saw Eric Shasker writing about suited. I thought he's one of the best dressed people (laughs) I know. I want to take his advice. But I also like to take his advice and his reporting about what's going on on Wall Street. He knows it so well and so many of the nuances of what's going on there. Uh, He is the author of this story. AI has a solution, as I was saying, to finance bias toward mini-me lacrosse bros. Yes. Yes. There is a bias toward mini-me lacrosse bros on Wall Street, I think it's fair to say. Eric's with us in our Bloomberg Interactive Brokers studio. Joel Weber, the editor of Bloomberg Business Week, also here. So, Schatz, what do you find here? This is intriguing. It certainly is. We've gotten so used to the idea that the robots are coming for Wall Street's jobs. Finally, we have almost like a counter-narrative, right? AI is actually going to help Wall Street hire people. The question or the issue here is which kind of people? Because for decades, the Wall Street recruiting model hasn't changed. You go to a bunch of exclusive schools and... The people doing the hiring tend to hire people who kind of look like them or feel like them or have done the same things like them. It's called the like-me bias. And you end up with an industry, I'm speaking of investment banking, in which 73% of senior-level managers are white men. Shouldn't surprise anybody, but that statistic really tells it all. Wall Street needs to become more diverse. That recruiting model doesn't really lend itself to diversity, so you've got to introduce something new, something disruptive, and that's something disruptive is artificial intelligence. And so Suited is the name of uh, the AI service that's uh, in the story. What, what's the take here? Why, why is this the solution? Well, it is a solution. It's the one that was developed specifically for investment banking. There are a number of other companies. I'll name a couple. Aon Hewitt, for example, a gigantic business services consulting firm. Another startup called Pymetrics that are doing... AI-based recruiting, but investment banking is different, as are many of the occupations on Wall Street, very heavily human capital intensive. And so the skills required 
for other jobs don't really apply to investment banking. And so what Suda did was it built a profile that culls information from candidates specifically to answer the needs of investment banking. What it does then is it runs the profiles through a series of algorithms and it scores the candidates. The candidates with the highest scores are likely to fit into XYZ investment bank best and perform best. And so that gives those firms a better set of candidates from which to choose from when deciding who to give interviews. So it's almost Again, it's not the squash players or the lacrosse players or the people who belong to a certain fraternity or club. It's colorblind. It's background blind. It's gender blind. It's what it needs to be if you want to introduce real diversity into the process. So effectively, you're talking about changing the funnel, right? So how has the funnel, how have they, where they put this funnel to actually like change what ends up on the other side? That's, well, yes, it is changing the way the funnel works. It's widening the funnel. Uh, we're talking about a bigger pool need, of candidates be, from more schools because new computers inputs. can process right. more information than yeah, humans more. can. That's part of the reason why the recruiting process has been, if you will, as hamstrung. So, so as where do they been. get these new inputs from that you know Wall Street's been blind to? Well, Wall Street's been intentionally blind to more people. It's focused on a small number of target schools. You know the names: Duke, Chicago. Wharton, right? All roads lead to Philadelphia, Harvard to a degree, both at the undergraduate and graduate level. The idea here is that if you can recruit from a larger body of schools, then you're going to have a better talent pool from and, which to choose from. And maybe people that as a starter that weren't going to be maybe interested in finance in the in the first place, right? That's right. Yeah. It's an easy. It's easy. It's for. easy to <laughs> fill out. It's easy to fill out the profile, right? It only takes about thirty minutes. And the idea is that then you're part of this ecosystem and, like you say, you know, Molas and Co. or Houlihan Loki or PJT Partners or Lazard can choose you instead of another carbon copy of the people who've been at that firm, those kinds of firms, I should say, for decades. Eric, this really speaks to, you know, how many studies have we seen over the years um, that talks about the importance of diversity in terms of the C-suite and the boards that are out there and that you tend to get better financial results. And I would assume that the investment banks, I mean, they want to have bankers in place that are doing the biggest, the best deals, because that means more fees for the firm. So it's about really getting, hopefully, a diverse crop means, you know, you're tapping into the best Everywhere. It's for two reasons. You're absolutely right. There are plenty of data to demonstrate that diversity, particularly gender diversity, leads right. to better decisions and ultimately better performance. And this is a very competitive industry. And so you need to place a premium on human capital because talent is what drives results. Right. But the second reason to do this is one that we've experienced in many industries. The customers are demanding it. They don't want another crew of white guys showing up to pitch the next deal. They want to see a diversity of people because that means there's going to be a diversity of ideas. And the more ideas you have, the better the best idea is going to be. One of the things that struck me about this as interesting is that this is a little bit out of enlightened self-interest on the part of some of the smaller sort of boutique-ish type banks who are They're looking the for an on. edge – against their bigger rivals who have more candidly like bodies to throw at the diversity problem but it also may help them distinguish themselves 
as a friendlier and more diverse place to work, ultimately, I would imagine, if this works. Both of those apply. They do need to find ways of being more competitive on the talent front with the J.P. Morgans and Goldman Sachs's and B of A's and Citigroup's and Morgan Stanley's of the world. And they are also more creative. And in you know, if you're willing to experiment with ideas and you're willing to experiment with different ways of doing business, you might actually find something that's better right. than whatever it's been, you know, whatever it is you've been doing. So Which goes to for, your point, Carol, about this idea that ultimately all the studies prove that diversity makes is a better. difference. So bring right. it back to Sudan. Makes a difference. How, how is it going? Who's using so far, them? so good. The, the platform has been open only since the spring. They have more than 10,000 people who filled out profiles thus far. So that's an enormous body of data to work with. And those profiles are beginning to be run through the algorithms customized for each firm. So each of these firms, the nine firms on the suited platform, are beginning to see what it means to have an AI-powered solution. What they haven't done yet is start to use those scores to make those interview selections. That's going to start happening this fall with PJT, with Molis in the spring, and the others are sure to follow along. And we know he's going to expand his business into other things, I think, like trading. But what's interesting is it'll take time to see whether or not right. this process makes a difference, right? In terms yeah, of for more the deals. time, you have to believe in the principle. Yeah. Right. And you have to keep believing the print in the principle to see whether over time it works. Ideally, five, ten years from now, the bank... Next, next time it's going to be about I, suits, though. I, I, but <laughs> to me, this is like the story of problems and solutions. It is. All right. Thank you both. Eric Schatzker, Joel Weber, you're with us in New York. This is Bloomberg. All right. Well, always a good day when we've got a little walk-in music from Mr. Tom Petty. David Spring here with us. He is founder and CEO of Runway Growth based out in San Francisco here with us in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio today. You're sort of a bi-coastal guy, though, um, looking after technology, the venture world. You've been doing this for, for quite some time. What moment are we at in especially the IPO market right now? Because mm-hmm. it has been a doozy of a year, it feels like, to use the technical term. Uh, yeah, we're definitely at an inflection point. Yeah, I think uh, from the venture community's point of view, we've kind of ended this era of growth at any cost. Mm. And there's an excessive amount of liquidity, which is great for innovation. And there's a lot of entrepreneurship. and Liquidity meaning available venture capital. Available capital for, for investing in venture. And it's not just from venture firms. Uh. I mean, it's from other big Private investors. equity? Well, private equity is starting to come into it. And they're even creating teams to do venture capital. SoftBank is the biggest mm-hmm. new player with the Vision Fund. You see insurance companies, mutual funds, all kinds of what some people might call tourists that aren't traditional players that may go when the market changes. Does that allow something like a WeWork to be created? I think it did, indeed, yes. And WeWork probably raised more money than was good for itself and you know, and, and let the valuation get ahead of itself. Um, and I think that WeWork is the poster child for the end of this era. And Wall Street has clearly said we're not buying into these business models that don't have a path to profitability. Yet, this is the story Jason and I have been talking about today, right? You said to me, do, do we get this? That there is now talk that they might get a financing package to ease their cash crunch uh, and possibly by a bank that was connected with them. I mean, there's nothing confirmed here. But do you find it staggering that Wall Street, after not really necessarily loving the IPO, would now come in and say, we've got basically a rescue package for you? 
What? How do you make sense of that? I mean, Wall Street is motivated by fees, and yeah. there were a lot of fees associated with the IPO, and the debt package that was offered, basically $6 billion of debt if you raise $3 billion of equity, it's very similar to what we do, just on a much, much grander scale. Right. You know, when we deal with startups, we'll say, hey, go raise $10 million of equity, and we'll lend you five. Right. You know, that kind of thing. But in a viable business. But in a viable business. And there, and, and we would have never done WeWork because of WeWork's uh, lease liabilities. You know, you get $49 billion of obligations that have to be paid. So it's not surprising to me that the bank bank, one of the banks that were underwriters, would want to offer a package. Um, I wouldn't also be surprised if Masa from Vision Fund offers like a down and dirty round. Right. I don't know if you've heard that phrase, but yeah. a wipeout round where he says, look, I'll do $2, million, $2 billion more, but it's going to be at a zero pre-money. Right. And if you want to own anything of this company, you've got to participate. The people that get hurt are the employees that, right. that own common shares that will now be worthless. Yeah. And so when you look at the market out there, and, and I really like the fact you brought up this sort of debt and equity split because this is your business, how does that fit into this current moment of, you said an inflection point, I might take it a step further and say, maybe a moment of reckoning. Yeah. So does that make what you're doing ultimately more attractive? Because it, it feels like it's a little bit more of a stringent, grown-up, maybe not growth-at-any-cost kind of approach in yeah. some way. Well, I think that you're going to find people that still focus on growth because that's what we're funding, sure. whether it be debt mm-hmm. or equity, but that it's um, measured and uh, balanced with capital efficiency. And when you look at capital efficiency, there's also um, how you uh, mix equity and debt. And that's what we do. And and we believe that the venture industry has not used enough debt in the past. And that as companies stay private Which the private equity industry has. Big time, right? Big time. (laughs) You know, their deals are 70 or 80% debt. Right. And most venture deals are zero. Yeah. When we do a deal, we go up to 20% debt. Mm -hmm. So it's a very conservative amount of debt. And it's usually done at the very end. So if you can imagine a company has raised $100 million of venture equity and they need $25 million more to get to an IPO or an M&A exit or cash flow positive, they don't need to raise more equity. It's well, and they don't want to get debt. further diluted. They don't want right? to get diluted. That's right. 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 And the, the difference can be huge. Right. You know, just a quick example. So if your company's worth $100 million and you need to raise $20 million more, you know, then after that money, you're going to have a post-money valuation of 120. So that means you gave up about 17% of the business uh, to get that $20 million. If you come to us and we lend you the money, you're only going to give up 1%. We get a little sliver of equity yeah. in the form of warrants as a kiss with the loan. But uh, So you, you've saved you know, 16% of your company. Right. And, if it, and if you, when entrepreneurs always do, think their company's going from $100 million to a billion, 16% is worth $160 million. That's a big deal. Yeah. Yeah, it's a big delta. Yeah. So 20 seconds. So then do you think we'll start to see even more of these startup companies stay private even longer than they already have? Just quickly. Yes, because they can will. do this. They can, and it's been true for a long yeah. time. Yeah. 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 So. Great Come conversation. Come back and see us. Really yeah. enjoyed it. Uh, David Sprang is founder and CEO of Runway Growth, based out in San Francisco, here in our Bloomberg Interactive Brokers Studio. I'm driving in my car. I turn on the radio. How about you let me drive? Oh, no. No, no, no. Who's going to drive you home? 
Honey, please, I'll do the driving. Drive on. Excuse me, I want to drive. Just drive, baby. It's the question that drives us. This is the drive to the close. That punk music will drive us till the dawn. On Bloomberg Radio. It's time for the drive to the close now. The end of the week, the Friday trade. We're green, but a little less than we were just a few minutes ago, even as these trade headlines continue to roll out. Let's break it down with Michael Cagino. He is president and portfolio manager of the Permanent Portfolio Family of Funds. They're looking after about $2.3 billion. He joins us on the phone from San Francisco. Michael, great to have you back with us. Yeah, good afternoon. All right, so help us make sense of the trade on the trade here because it feels like that's all we've really been paying attention to or the market has been paying attention to for this week, certainly with little sideshows here and there of geopolitical and impeachment and maybe a couple earnings uh, spread throughout. But how is the market assessing this and synthesizing it at this moment? Yeah, I'd agree. I would agree it has been the story this week. Well, I think the market's up because it sounds like there may be a, a little deal being done. And, uh, and as a result, I think markets want a little bit less uncertainty. They want to feel like the sides are still talking. I think a lot of people are starting to realize that the bigger structural issues between the two countries are probably not resolvable in the short term, if ever. And so I think if you can dial back the tariffs and the currency devaluations and some of the smaller issues, maybe there are areas we can compromise and get a deal and bring down the heat while still acknowledging that we have two different political systems and two different economies and and take measures as necessary to facilitate that aspect of the relationship. And so I think what's developed in the last week or so has been right. um, favorable actions in those areas, and hence the market's been up. Well, and let's just throw out some other headlines. Uh, U.S. Treasury Secretary Stephen Mnuchin saying that the 25 to 30 percent hike uh, in tariffs set to go into effect next week against China will not be implemented as the U.S. and China finalize, uh, finalize this part of the trade deal. Uh, as we know, we've had two days of talks between negotiators from both sides of the country. President Trump also, we have a headline saying the China deal includes IP, intellectual property, financial services, and agricultural buys. That would be a little bit more comprehensive, Jason, I feel like, than what we have been thinking that it might be, because IP has certainly, and financial services has been a uh, a trickier uh, wick, if you will. Yeah, for sure. And it's interesting, uh, Michael Cagino, sort of, as you say, this has largely been what investors have been looking at. It also feels like it's a key area that Jay Powell and his colleagues at the Fed have been looking at. There, there seem to be, uh, and I'd be interested in your take on this, a lot of not-so-veiled references to trade and the tensions therein and that playing through uh, the global economy and maybe ultimately some of the decision-making that the Fed will make around interest rates. What do you make of the Fed right now? Well, absolutely. I think... You know, there's no question the U.S. economy has slowed a little bit in terms of estimated GDP. We're now talking about high ones, low 2% annualized GDP growth versus probably earlier in the year, high twos, low threes kind of thing. And again, until the numbers are in the books, we don't know. But certainly the trade, the tariffs, 
the weak global growth in part caused by trade issues around the world. And it's not only China trade, but it's, it's Brexit. It's U.S. trade with the European Union and potentially England and post-Brexit. It's the failure to ratify the new NAFTA. And so a lot of these things are dinging the economy little bit by little bit, and that's bringing down the growth rate. So obviously that impacts the Fed, who are trying to manage you know, the cost of capital in this environment. And if the economy is slowing, they may be more liberal with respect to cutting the Fed funds rate. Right. If, uh, if not, then they might be a little tighter than the market expects. Michael, forgive, so that's where it intersects. Forgive me, I just want to bring more headlines because President Trump is uh, meeting with reporters right now in the Oval Office, and we're starting to – ultimately we will have some uh, tape on it and play it to our audience. But we do get some of the headlines. We mentioned – uh, U.S. Treasury Secretary Steve Mnuchin saying the Chinese tariffs will not go up next week. That's a big one. Uh, the chief trade negotiator for China, Lia He, uh, saying that hopefully we will make some progress. Um, and also President Trump saying the enforcement part of a Chinese deal is being worked out. Uh, President saying that Chinese ag purchases to grow to 40 to $50 billion. Uh, so we are hearing comments from both sides. A currency deal, too, President Trump saying is an important part of the Chinese talk. Uh, so uh, a little bit more in terms of headlines, and that explains some of the market reaction uh, that we've been seeing in these last few minutes of trading. We did see a pop initially. I will say we've definitely come off our highs. The Dow, uh, I think, was up as much as, was it 400 or 500 points? Let me just check here my numbers. We were up 517 points at our highs, up almost 2%. We've definitely backed off off of that. We're still up about 381 points. But again, more of these headlines uh, we'll bring to you as uh, they are known. And and so, Michael, you know, as you think about that, and if you assume that maybe this is positive news on trade, which it feels like the market seems to agree with that, and maybe we have a little bit of uh, selling on the news or, you know, uh, getting some, uh, grabbing some profits here at the end of the week, uh, what's the next thing sort of on your worry list? Well, the devil will be in the details on this agreement. So, you know, if you're talking a month or three to five weeks, whatever the day, the, the period is to, to put on paper, who knows what's going to happen between then. But it, it makes sense. I mean, putting, waiting on tariffs in exchange for a lack of currency devaluation, that makes sense. The devil will definitely be in the details on IP and financial services and those sorts of things. And, you know, so we'll wait and see. The next thing that's coming up, I think, you, you talked about the Fed. We're talking about this deal. The next thing coming up is corporate earnings. Um, yeah. Q3 earnings are going to begin, I believe, next week. Expectations are really low, um, which means that we, you know, depending on how the economy really is performing, we may beat some of those low expectations, and that would give the equity market some momentum going into the fourth quarter. Um, and also provide further foundation to multiples to either at least stay where they are or grow from here. Right, and you do wonder if indeed we get this deal, we'll wait for some more comments, uh, obviously from the president, what kind of comfort that will bring to uh, global CEOs, certainly U.S. CEOs, and whether or not we'll see those comments come out when they talk about the outlook in those earnings reports. Right. Michael Cugino, we're going to leave it there. Thank you so much, President Portfolio Manager for the Permanent Portfolio Family of Funds, looking after about $2.3 billion there on the phone from San Francisco. And one more headline, which I think is important. Trump saying, we have, quote, agreed in principle, end quote, to a deal, but need to, quote, get it papered. And I do think back, just to add a little bit of a note of caution, Correct. you know, these two parties have been at the table uh, a number of times. This is the third yeah. major meeting, I believe, this year. So as Michael Cugino very rightly said, 
the devil's into the details and got to get this signed. We've already seen some headlines, too, I think earlier in the day about, you know, the meeting again, I think, over in Asia or China later this year. So it ain't done until it's done is basically what we're saying. This is Bloomberg Radio. Thanks for listening to Bloomberg Business Week. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show every weekday at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio.